When the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company is taken over by printer company Sabre, uh, some new policies are implemented to incentivize and increase sales. This, however, leads to a dynamic where the sales team begins to think that they're better than the non-sales team. And so they treat them accordingly. They walk out in the middle of meetings. Uh, they don't answer to emails. They are verbally disrespectful to their colleagues. During this time of inflated importance, head office sends a, a package of potential leads uh, they obtained from their marketing research division. Frustrated and angry about the sales team's disrespectful attitude, Michael, regional manager of Dunder Mifflin uh, Scranton, decides to not hand out these leads. When Gabe from head office finds out about this, he gives Michael a call. Follow along the conversation. Michael, we spent a lot of money on those leads. You have to give them out. Then we are just rewarding their bad behavior. Okay, just imagine that instead of going to jail for murdering someone, you got an ice cream cone. If that were the case, then in the summertime, everyone would go around killing people for the pleasure of an ice cream cone. Michael, I don't want to incentivize murder, but we've tried to make it clear that our policy emphasizes sales staff. They act like I have no power, but you do. You're in charge. Thank you of supporting the sales staff. Have you ever been in Michael's shoes? Have you ever been treated like you weren't important? Have you ever been offended, disrespected by someone that you were supposed to support? And have you ever wanted, like Michael, to not reward their bad behavior, to uh, see a little justice happen? Whether it's a colleague, neighbor, uh, family member, someone at church, that can happen. Isn't it hard at times to, to desire and to seek the good of these people when what you really want, if you're honest, is something closer to the opposite? Don't we all at times want to seek, sorry, want a little justice? To see people get what they deserve. To face the consequences to their actions, to their lifestyle. Justice is a deep desire for God's people throughout most of the Bible. Ever since they were enslaved by Egypt, they have been having difficulties with their neighboring people groups. Assyria, Babylon, and Persia in the Old Testament, and Rome in the New. 
If you knew you were God's divinely chosen and favored people, but you've been pushed around by one too many other countries, wouldn't you want a little, little justice? Wouldn't you pray regularly Psalm 94 that says, the Lord is a God who avenges. Oh God who avenges, shine forth. Rise up, judge of the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? He will repay them for their sins and destroy them for their wickedness. The Lord our God will destroy them. Bad people shouldn't be allowed to live without any consequences. Am I right? If you're in agreement, or you're, you're like, oh, I'm not so sure, you may be able to relate to the person of interest today. His name's Jonah, and he was a prophet. We are currently in a four-week series going through the book of Jonah, a book that some may consider historical and others consider satirical. Regardless of how you understand the book, it was written in a time where the people of God, where Israel wanted justice. They had been attacked by many people, and in one particular group, the Assyrian, hello, sorry, they had been attacked by a lot of people, and in our story, uh, we are dealing with the Assyrians. The Assyrians were evil and violent people. I want you to think of Mad Max kind of people. If you watch The Walking Dead like I do, Negan and the Saviors, or uh, think of a, a city, a culture full of Dolores Umbridges, the worst. The Assyrians were the villains. And so God tells Jonah, the prophet, go to the great city of Nineveh, that is the, the capital of Assyria, and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Instead of going, however, Jonah does the opposite. He runs away, sails away in the opposite direction. Because of his disobedience, Jonah is thrown off the boat by his sailing companions and swallowed by a fish. However, he ends up somehow surviving uh, the eating process, and inside the belly of this fish, he, he prays a prayer. And because of this prayer, God decides to make this fish spit Jonah out back onto dry land. And that is what we've covered so far in the last two weeks. And so, if you would, please take the Bibles in front of you and turn to Jonah 3 on page 754. It's very easy. It's right in front of you. 754. I did this this morning. I'm very sure it's the page. And then would you rise with me as we read God's word together? 
chapter three. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for your word and how you, uh, it is the same word as we have sung, you are the same God, and this is the same word that speaks to us um, throughout generations. And so God, we pray, Uh, as our good father, generous father, that you would give us your spirit in abundance that we may be able to hear you, to see you, to know you, and to follow you. Thank you for your presence with us, in us, among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated, thank you. To all those who read with me, thank you. I wasn't, I, I, I meant just like read silently, but uh, to those who read out loud, I, I, I like that. I thought I was hearing angels at first. Uh, and, then it, and then it turned out it was, I'm pretty sure it was people. Maybe no, no one is reading and it, it was angels, but to whoever that was, thank you. Um, where am I? Okay. At the end of their conversation, Gabe tells Michael that he has to give out the leads. There's no choice. It's his job, it's his responsibility. So that's what Michael does. He gives out the leads, just not to the team. He gives them to the receptionist, to the accountant, and to the other non-sales staff. And what we see in our opening verses is Jonah doing something similar. According to our text that we just read, it takes about three days to travel through Nineveh. But Jonah starts preaching a day in. 
If you have an important message, you, you know, you, 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 you speed into the center of the city. You take it to the powerful people. You take it to the politicians. You don't go just into the, the beginning of the city and start sharing your message. Let's also take a look at Jonah's sermon. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. In our English translation, that is nine words. Uh, nine words is, short, is a short sermon by anyone's standards, but in the Hebrew, it's actually five words. Jonah is just saying, you're all going to die. That's it. And then mic drop. Notice that Jonah doesn't mention God. Jonah doesn't mention Yahweh. Jonah doesn't mention any option of repentance or God's mercy. Nothing. Nada. It's like when someone responds with K, period, or sure, or when a kid rolls their eyes when they apologize. Jonah is doing the bare minimum here. Jonah has quiet quit on God. Jonah is technically obeying God, but not in the way God wants, God expects. Well, he knows everything, so maybe God expects that. Despite that, however, something amazing happens. We're not gonna go through it again, but if you remember, the king and the entire city is convicted. And they wholeheartedly repent by fasting, by putting on sackcloth or, or burlap, and committing to giving up their evil and violent ways. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That was verse five. In an ironic turn of events, Jonah's prophecy comes true, just not in the way that he was expecting. They were turned over, just differently. You see, in other parts of the Bible, the word overturned in Hebrew, which is pronounced uh, hapak, I'm probably butchering that, but hapak, uh, is used to describe change. In Exodus 7.15, Moses' staff is changed, hapak, into a snake. In Hosea 11.8, God says, my heart is changed, hapak, within me. All my compassion is aroused. The Ninevites were changed. They were transformed. They were overturned. And so we read, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Where Jonah wanted destruction, 
God wanted transformation. Go back with me and take a look at verses 1 and 2. Let me read it. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So in chapter 3, God gives Jonah the, this call a second time. Does anyone, however, see the slight change in God's command? In verses, one, uh, sorry, in chapter one, verse two, God says, "Preach against Nineveh." Elsewhere in the Bible, this is associated with impending judgment. But in verses three, two, God now says, "Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it." This phrase in the Old Testament, "proclaim to." has an association not so much with judgment, but with a call to repentance and a promise of deliverance. The shift from against to to tells us that Jonah, sorry, tells us and Jonah that God all along did not want the, the end, the destruction of Nineveh, but rather the repentance and the transformation of it, their deliverance. God's intention to, for Jonah to go to Nineveh and proclaim to it wasn't to just rub their sin in their face, to just say, you're gonna die in 40 days and, and have fun until then. God is not sadistic. Micah 7.18 says, who is a God like you who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight, delight to show mercy. God desires and delights to show mercy to repentant people. And it was God's plan from the beginning to show the Ninevites such a mercy. Although the Bible does have moments, does have lines that seem to suggest that God is, is vengeful, is violent, if we look at the Old Testament as a whole, if we look at the Bible as a whole, we see something very different. We see a God of mercy, we see a God of grace. For all the people out there who, who can't get on board with uh, the God of the Old Testament, I, I, I get it. God seems pretty vengeful. And you know what? God's people also had that understanding, or should we say misunderstanding. One of the biggest hurdles Israel had with God in scripture is its concept of justice. Here we see Jonah, prophet of God, who the author is using as a symbol of Israel that wants revenge and, and, and retribution. For them, God is John Wick, uh, Liam Neeson, or, or Carol from The Walking Dead. 
You don't want to mess with Carol. Uh, they're, they're ready. They're waiting to enact vengeance, justice. After Jesus resurrects from the dead, his disciples ask him, is this the time when you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, is this, is when you're going to, is this the time when you are going to, to put Rome back in its place? Is this when you're going to decimate them and when you're going to lift us up to, to power, to political and military power? Despite living on the road with Jesus for three years, seeing him only heal people, seeing him only feed people, be with people on the margins, they somehow still thought that when Jesus rose from the, rose from the dead, he'd come back guns a-blazing. Despite being possibly the most evil and violent people in the world, God didn't wipe out the Ninevites and instead chose mercy. N.T. Wright says this in his book, Evil and the Justice of God. God's justice is not simply a blind dispensing of rewards for the virtuous and punishments for the wicked, though plenty of those are to be found on the way. God's justice is a saving, healing, restorative justice because the God to whom justice belongs is the creator God who is yet to complete his original plan for creation and whose justice is designed not simply to restore balance to a world out of kilter, but to bring to glorious completion and fruition the creation teeming with life and possibility that he made in the first place. And he remains implacably determined to complete this project through his image-bearing human creatures. Justice, true justice, according to scripture, according to the life of Jesus, is restorative, not retributive. I'll say that again. True justice, biblical justice, is restorative and not retributive. God desires restoration, not retribution. Transformation, not destruction. Life, not death. God wants people to be turned around, not just turned over. Whether it's the story of the prodigal son who tells his dad to die and runs away with his money, spends it on God knows what, and then comes back home in earnest sorrow to receive a warm welcome by his dad and a big party with a fattened calf. calf. Or it's uh, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, the traitor, the man who abuses, abused his power to get rich off of his own people, but then earnestly repents and gives much of his money back away. 
who Jesus says, salvation has come to this man and is a son of Abraham. Or whether it's our own story of coming back, coming back to God, coming to God in repentance and him blessing us more than we could probably imagine. In these stories and in countless more, we see God's heart, God's desire for the world and all people. Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The apostle Peter says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. If this type of justice is true justice, is the justice that God calls us to, then I think this means two things for our lives. And let me briefly, depending on your opinion of brief, explain these two. Firstly, I think our text calls us, all of us, wherever we are, to repentance. Uh, To what the Bible calls confession and repentance. To confess the ways in which we rebel, to confess the ways in which we still hold on to our own evil and violent ways, what the Bible simply just says as our sin and to humble ourselves, like the Ninevites, to turn away from those things and those ways of life. Uh, secondly, I think, this is, I think this calls us to what missiologist Alan Hirsch calls discipleism. In the church, we often separate these two ministries, these are two ministries evangelism and discipleship. Um, That is helping people believe in Jesus and helping people follow Jesus. But as Hirsch and really many others will argue is that there is no such dichotomy, no such difference in scripture. Jesus' disciples never prayed the sinner's prayer. After Jesus rose from the dead, they still didn't understand his mission or his ministry. The lives of the disciples, the the following of Jesus by the disciples is really not that clear cut. And with chapter three's emphasis on the Ninevites' hapak or their transformation, I I believe this passage is calling all of us all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, um, to actively and intentionally be involved in the the hapak, the the transformation in the world, in, in people's lives, regardless of where they are in their faith, regardless of where they are in their life, in disciplism. Not just to be preventative, not to just stop people from from doing certain things, but to be encouraging, proactive about moving people, leading people, turning people 
towards a better life. If Jesus is the God of restorative justice, then our calling is to help all people, including our Ninevites, including our enemies, including our sales staff, not to just avoid hell and and harming others, but towards restoration, towards transformation, towards life. Discipleism, particularly in the context of Jonah 3, I think means praying for our enemies, praying for those who rub us the wrong way, and thinking about and asking how can we help them and how can we support them in turning around? In other words, and how can we help them repent? The word repent means to change one's mind, but it also means to literally turn. However, we we think of it in terms of a one and done kind of thing. We repent once to God and and that's it, but it's, it's really a lifelong journey. None of us have the mind and heart of Christ fully. None of us are fully attuned, affixed to God. All of us are in the process of being changed, of being transformed, of being turned. So my question for you is, who do you consider the Ninevites in your life? The the enemies, the, the people that rub you the wrong way, that are deserving of punishment or at least deserving of not, of of not being rewarded uh, to their bad behavior. And you know what I mean. Although we are, sorry, who are the people that God is calling you to turn around? And although we are all on a journey to to God, if, if you haven't made that commitment yet, how might possibly in this moment, God may be asking you, speaking to you, um, how might God be calling you to turn in some way, in some form or fashion? If God can forgive and relent of his destruction on the most evil and violent people, if God can do that with us, surely we can do that with other people. Let me conclude. Um, Now perhaps you might be thinking, how can God just wipe the slate clean with these people? I mean, after all, these people are the most wicked and violent people on the planet. Negan and Dolores Umbridge deserve justice. How can God just forgive them? Let them go scot-free. What kind of justice is that? What kind of God is that? It's not fair. If everyone past, present, and future can avoid all the consequences to their actions. And you know what? You're right. 
This is why then God came in the flesh of Jesus. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do right now. It's kind of the, the really serious moment. I got one more paragraph, okay? I love you, man. All right, let's get back. Let's get back to Jesus, okay? This is why then God came in the flesh. God came in Jesus to, to take on uh, the pain and the shame of the cross and to absorb and to absolve us of those consequences of our punishment. He took it on for the Ninevites. He took it on for us. And he takes it on for everyone so that we wouldn't have to. So that we can live freely and forever with God and all people who call Jesus Lord. And so let us be like the Ninevites. Let us be humble people that, that, that fast and, and wear sackcloth, uh, literally and metaphorically, and, and, and go on our knees and, and confess. And let us not be like Jonah. Let us be a people that seek to proclaim to and not against all people, friends and enemies, the, the lavish love of God. Would you pray with me? God, it is hard at times to comprehend your goodness. We read about it, but it is hard to accept. Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, enable us to see you as you truly are. Not the retributive God, but the restorative God. Would you restore us and would you use us as your conduits to bring restoration into this broken world? In Jesus' name we pray.